Well, as we continue a survey study here of the topics covered in the Westminster Confession of Faith, we come this evening to read Colossians 1, verses 15 through 20. It's just one of the texts that we'll refer to this evening as we consider just the first part. We won't say everything there is to be said. Indeed, I have two sermons here on Christ the Mediator, but uh, in those two sermons I probably won't be able to say everything that can be said about Christ our Mediator. And indeed, I'll also separate out some sermons on Christ as prophet, priest, and king, all from uh, this part, this portion of the topics that are covered in the Westminster Confession of Faith. And so again, these uh, evening sermons are going to have a little less application than morning sermons often do, but we'll see uh, the uh, uh, there's much that we can learn here from God's Word. But I read now uh, Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20 as a starting point for this evening. And this is speaking of Jesus Christ. Paul under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes to the church at Colossae. And so this is the word of the living God. Let's attend with reverence to it. Again, Colossians 1, verses 15 through 20. Again, speaking of Christ, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by Him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, and all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. This ends the reading of God's holy word for us, at least for the moment. Let's uh, again briefly pray. Lord, we thank you that you are a faithful God, again, who has come to us in the person of Christ Jesus. And as we consider this topic this evening of Christ the Mediator, We pray that you would grant that our faith might be built up, that we might be trusting all the more in Christ Jesus, who alone can mediate between God and man, because he alone is God and man. And so we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last time, a couple of Sabbaths ago, the last time we had evening service, uh, we took a look at the covenants God has made with his people through Christ Jesus. Originally, we had the first covenant that was made uh, with mankind in Adam, uh, which, of course, we failed. And then the new covenant made with his people in Christ. And we noted that we failed and continue to fail to keep the covenant of works. Indeed, after Adam's fall, in which we are all counted guilty, Uh, each one of us uh, is incapable now of even keeping that covenant of works. We are disobedient, and so we're subject to God's curse for breaking the covenant of works. 
And the results of our breaking the covenant of works are our estrangement from our Creator and undergoing His wrath, uh, which makes us liable to misery in this life, subject to death and deserving of the penalties of hell forever. But God in His great love and mercy entered into the covenant of grace with His elect, delivering us out of the state of sin and misery and bringing us to a state of salvation by a Redeemer. So again, as we noted before, the the covenant of works still has to be kept. The difference is, though we cannot keep it, Christ keeps it, and all who are in Christ are counted as having kept it because he now is our covenant head, our federal head, as Adam was in our fall. It's that Redeemer, Jesus Christ, who alone can mediate this new covenant between God and mankind. To call Christ mediator is really to sum up his person and work in one word. If you had to sum up everything Christ is and did in terms of his mission on earth, in one word, the best word to choose would be mediator. To call Christ mediator is really to sum up everything that he is and has done, at least in terms of his mission. Because as we know, as Paul says in 1 Timothy 2, there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And as I've pointed out before, the, the Greek, some would argue, can actually be translated there as God is the one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So we have one who is both God and man. So the doctrine of Christ as mediator is so important that even a quick overview of what Presbyterians historically believe we're, we're going to need to, to spend a few weeks on. <clears throat> the Westminster Confession says this, It pleased God in his eternal purpose to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus, his only begotten Son, to be the mediator between God and man, the prophet, priest, and king, the head and savior of his church, the heir of all things, and judge of the world, unto whom he did from all eternity give a people to be his seed and to be by him in time redeemed, called, justified, sanctified, and glorified. Now we'll save Christ's office as prophet, priest, and king for future sermons, but for now, uh, note a few things that the confession points out there from Scripture. Uh, God's eternal plan was for his only begotten Son, the Lord Jesus, to be mediator between God and man, between him and his elect in particular, who, as Ephesians 1 say, God had ordained to be elect from before the foundation of the world. We saw when we began this series how the scriptures show that the Son of God is eternally God. He is not, as the ancient Arian heresy said, or the modern Jehovah's Witnesses would say, a created being uh, created by God who then created everything else. We noted before how uh, John chapter 1 shoots that down right away with that awkward sentence that says uh, that there was nothing that was made that was not made by him, right? <laughs> so, that, so that we know that uh, he was not made. Everything that was made was made by him. And we saw similar language to that in Colossians 1 just a few minutes ago. He made all things that were made. He was not created. He's always existed and always will. He is the eternal God. 
That's what Paul means in Colossians 1, 16 and 17 when he says, By him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That's the ESV translation of, of that same passage we just read. So that's one thing. God's eternal plan was for his only begotten son to be the mediator between him and his elect. Christ has, number two, Christ has a a people chosen by the Father, as I already mentioned, whom uh, he has redeemed, called, justified, sanctified, and glorified. That's a language from Romans 8. In future weeks, we'll see what all those terms mean. But for now, uh, we see that it's through the eternal Son of God who along with the uh, Father and the Holy Spirit is the Creator, that His people are saved. It's through the Son that God's people are saved, whom He has elected before the foundation of the earth. So the third thing we see is that He is therefore the Savior and the Head of His church, as we also read in Colossians 1 and verse 18. And He is the Head of the body, the church, who is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. Jesus even is the first to be resurrected to everlasting life. Other people have been raised to life again by God through prophets and especially through Jesus himself, but they were raised back to this life. We in fact even know, I have a pretty good idea, where Lazarus is buried on the island of Cyprus, where he went and served as a pastor. And his grave marker there says, Lazarus, four days dead, friend of Jesus. There we have a pretty good idea. There's a grave marker there for him. So Lazarus was raised to life, but it was to his ordinary earthly life that he was raised back to. Jesus is the firstborn from the dead to eternal life, so that in all things he might have preeminence, But key to what we're considering tonight in verse 18 there is that Jesus is the head of the body of the church. He's the Savior and the head of His church. He's the heir of all things, as the confession said. One scripture that points to that would be Psalm 2. We see in verses 7 and 8. Here this is Christ actually speaking, saying, I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. As we've noted before, again I'll say, when Christ, of course, was the ruler over all things as God, always Though he veiled his glory for a time when he came into the world, uh, he possessed all of the attributes of God ever and always. But in his human nature, he lived a life of submission and submitted to God even unto the humiliating death of a cross, as Philippians 2 tells us. And therefore God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. And so he could say to his disciples, as is recorded in Matthew 28 after his resurrection, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples 
of all the nations. So all authority belongs to him as God, but as man, he earned the authority under God that he has. The authority that Adam should have had as the head of the human race, but failed. All authority in heaven and on earth belongs to him. He is the heir of all things. He's the judge of the world. Think of what Paul says in Acts 17 when he's preaching to the Athenians. We read in Acts 17, I'll start at verse 30. Verses 30 and 31, he says, Truly these times of ignorance, he's talking about the times when people did not follow the Lord, when the nations were under darkness. He says, Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. Because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained, he has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. So Christ's resurrection, in fact, is affirmation that he is the one who has the authority to judge the nations. And so that's what the confession tells us. The confession goes on. It says, The Son of God, the second person in the Trinity, being very and eternal God. So in the 17th century language, there very means truly. Being very or truly and eternal God. Of one substance and equal with the Father, as we studied that when we dealt with the Trinity, did when the fullness of time was come take upon him man's nature, with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, yet without sin, being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary of her substance, so that two whole, perfect, and distinct natures, the Godhead and the manhood, were inseparably joined together in one person without conversion, composition, or confusion. Which person is very God and very man. Yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. Which makes sense, doesn't it? It takes somebody who is both God and man to be the mediator between them. In ancient history, there was a story of King Cyrus the Great, who we know from the scriptures, who was one who freed the Jews from the Babylonian captivity when he took over the Babylonian Empire. Prior to that, he actually became the king of the Persians. And you'll notice the Bible says he's the king of the Medes and Persians, and that's pretty important. The Medes were actually the more powerful people of those two. But Cyrus was half Mede and half Persian, and that allowed him to mediate, as it were, between those two nations and bring them together under his rule before he built that large empire. Similarly, Christ is the only one who can actually truly mediate between God and man because he's the only one of us who is both. That saying, what the confession is saying here is that the one who has always been God the Son, at a point in history, became a man also, as we see in John chapter 1. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, so that he is both fully and truly God, and he's fully and truly human. He possesses everything. It's not like he's half and half, or a mixture of the two. He's, he possesses as God everything in his nature that God possesses in his nature, and as a man, he possesses 
everything that we as human beings possess in our nature. Isaiah 9.6 calls him Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He's fully and truly God. Jeremiah 23.6 calls the promised son of David the Lord, that is Yahweh, God's name, our righteousness. John 1, 1-3 declares him to be the creator. Colossians 2.9 says, In him the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily. And that's just a tiny portion of the scriptures which equate Jesus with Yahweh, with the Lord God. When the right time in God's plan came, he was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, and his human nature came from her. From her substance. By the way, that shows us in modern science, from what we know from modern science, that that was a miracle. Because if it were possible, there are barriers to this, by the way, that would keep this from happening. But if it were possible for a woman to spontaneously generate a child in her womb, it would have to be female. Because she only has two X chromosomes, right? And it takes an X and a Y to make a boy. But God could take of Mary's substance and create a son in her womb. We know the familiar accounts of the conception and the birth of Christ from Matthew and Luke and how in John 1, again, we're told that the Word was made flesh. But we see that this was a true human nature. The scriptures like John 4, 6 tell us that he was weary. He was thirsty. It was a true human nature, as the confession says, with the infirmities that we have. In 1 John 4, John condemns as antichrist anyone who says that Jesus did not have a true human nature. Hebrews 4.15 says of Jesus, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Jesus' human nature was real. He wasn't, as some of the ancient Gnostics tried to say, an illusion. His body was not a figment. It was, it was real. So he had, before his body was glorified, our weaknesses and our temptations. He was and is truly human, just without sinning. So he has a true and complete human nature, just as he has a true and complete divine nature. He is therefore both God and man, with no confusion as the confession rightly says, of, of those two natures. No commingling. He's not half and half, like in Greek mythology, somebody like Hercules, who's half God and half human. He's not a demigod. He's all God and all man at the same time. In a similar way in which God is one in nature that has three distinct persons who all share that very same nature, so God's not a pie made up of three slices. Right? He's, oh, the, the, every person of the Godhead has the whole pie in terms of the essence of God's nature. But there is a distinction of personhood. In the one person, the Son, there are two distinct natures. There's the human nature and the divine nature. Furthermore, the confession says, The Lord Jesus, in his human nature, thus united to the divine, was sanctified and anointed with the Holy Spirit above measure, 
having in him all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, in whom it pleased the Father that all fullness should dwell, to the end that being holy, harmless, undefiled, and full of grace and truth, he might be thoroughly furnished to execute the office of mediator and surety, which office he took not unto himself, but was thereunto called by his Father, who put all power and judgment into his hand and gave him commandment to execute the same. Among several things, some of which we'll come back to next week, Lord willing, what that's saying is that by virtue of being both God and man, he was mediator of a new covenant. In his human nature, he, like us, needed the Holy Spirit and was anointed with the Holy Spirit above measure. And it was the Father's decree as, a, as one who is submitting. He did not take unto himself the authority that he has as the Son of Man, but he, took, he was given, rather, the offices that go along with being the mediator. Just as Adam stood for all who were in him, the human race, Jesus could stand then for both sides of the covenant. All his people who were in him by faith in God and God could be represented both in this covenant by Jesus Christ. I think that's prefigured in Genesis 15 when we see that Abraham does something that God knew he understood. He does a covenant-making ceremony at God's command. God commands him to sacrifice animals and divide them in two. And then ordinarily what Abraham would have expected would happen is that when he's divided these animals in two is that he and God, because what would usually happen is two kings who are making a covenant would divide animals in two and they would walk between the divided parts of the animals as if to say, if I don't keep my side of this covenant, let this happen to me. Let me be destroyed as surely as these animals have been. And so Abraham would have likely expected that God might appear and walk with him through the parts of the animals that he's divided. And yet what happens is that God puts Abraham to sleep. Abraham's incapable of walking and taking on his side of the covenant. And instead, in his dream, God appears as a flaming fire and a smoking fire pot and moves through between the pieces of the animals himself as if to say, if I were not to keep this side of my covenant, let this happen to me. Of course, God's not going to die and God's not going to fail to keep his covenant. But he also then says, and if Abraham fails to keep this covenant, I will take the punishment on myself. And so that would take God taking on human nature so he could die and keeping Abraham's side of the covenant and then dying for Abraham's and all of our failure to keep that covenant. As both God and man, he had the qualities that were needed to fulfill all righteousness on our behalf. And as the one person of the Godhead, he was in full agreement in this task with the Holy Spirit and with the Father, for there really is one will of God. The Holy Spirit anointed him and the Father called him to do it. Sinful, fallen human beings need to be reconciled to God, but because we're sinners, we cannot even approach God to make reconciliation because He's holy and we're not. As we saw before, if we 
tried, we'd be inadequate to do it because we are totally depraved. That doesn't mean everything about us is sinful, but it means our sin touches everything about us and corrupts everything about us. So to make it possible for man to approach God in holiness, you had to have one person of the Godhead become one of us, become fully and truly human, and live a sinless life in our place, and then die a sinner's death. Since he is fully human yet without sin, he can approach the Father. And as God, he can then make God's part of the covenant as well. He was sent by the Father with all the power and authority to accomplish this. We'll see more details, Lord willing, in the future on the mediator, mediatorial kingship of Christ, his mediatorship, if that's the right word, uh, his office as mediator. But though there isn't much application here tonight, I hope that you see why it's so important that we believe Jesus is both God and man. Fully and truly God and fully and truly man. If we don't get that, we totally miss who Jesus actually is and what he accomplished. In fact, if we were hoping in one who is not fully God and fully man or truly God and truly man, we would be hoping in a false hope. We would be putting our trust in one who can't actually accomplish the reconciliation that we need. In his letters, the Apostle John makes it clear that to deny either the Godhead or the humanity of Christ makes a person antichrist. This is preaching against who Christ actually is. Christ is truly God, and he's truly human, which makes him the only possible mediator between mankind and our holy creator. If he's not God and man, he can't be our mediator. But because he is both God and man, he is the perfect mediator. And he's a mediator who cannot fail. As we'll see, Lord willing, in the weeks to come, we'll find more ways in which we can apply the fact that Christ alone is the mediator between God and man. But for now, let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks that in the fullness of time, you sent your Son to mediate between you and us, that we have a high priest who knows our weaknesses firsthand, but who is without sin. May we ever know him as both God and man, the only name under heaven whereby men can be saved, and the only mediator between our holy creator and we who are fallen, the God-man Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.